0: all across america and around the world this is veterans radio this is veterans radio and now your host for today's program dale Thronberry.
1: And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry. I was a Chief Warrant Officer, helicopter pilot in the United States Army, 1967 to 1971. Welcome to our program. We're live finally in 2023. We want to wish everybody a happy new year and hope that everything goes well for all of you. We've got a pretty interesting program today, I think. It's got, we are going to have a uh, gentleman named Ted Barker on and Ted is going to be talking about the Korean War Project. And, uh, you know, kind of the Korean War is one of those forgotten things. And so, the, the, as you may know, there is a memorial in Washington, D.C., and they're updating it. And so there's been a little bit of controversy, so hopefully uh, Ted can fill us in on that information. And then a little bit later on, we are going to have our uh, expert in foreign affairs, everything military, and that is Dr. Rebecca Grant. So make sure you stick around for these two really interesting stories. Uh, but first of all, I want to make sure that we thank all of our sponsors, because we can't do this program without their assistance and their monetary contributions, as they say. So I want to make sure we thank uh, Legal Help for Veterans, specializing in veterans' disability claims. For more information, you can just go to their website, that's LegalHelpForVeterans.com, or give them a call at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as the NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for the certification of veteran-owned business. For more information from them, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or give them a call at 888-237-8433. Uh, NVBDC is really important for those uh, veteran-owned businesses that are out there in order to do business with the federal government and many corporations, you need to be certified that you are really a veteran-owned business. And there's all kinds of hoops and so forth that you have to go through. These are the folks that can help you do that. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information, go to va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. We also want to thank our local veterans organizations here in the local area. That would be the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 310 and the Irwin Presscorn American Legion Post 46, both of Ann Arbor, Michigan. We can't do this program without their support. And we can't do it without you, our listeners. So if you want to help out Veterans Radio uh, as we try to expand our markets, uh, you can go to veteransradio.net, click on the Donate button. We are a nonprofit organization, and so your donation should be tax-deductible. All right, we're going to get right into the program right now. My first guest is Ted Barker, and Ted is with the korean war project and ted's been on the program before but i want to welcome him back ted welcome back to veterans radio
2: hey jail thanks a lot for uh, calling and having me on
1: thank you very much for agreeing to be on i wanted to kind of review you are an air force veteran correct yes and, and when did you serve
2: well i actually started in 1963 and uh, went active duty in 1966 and wound up with an uh, overseas NATO-based uh, tour in uh, Europe and got out in
1: 1970. Sounds like a good plan for all of those that were in during that time period. You, you got to go to the – what would you do? You must have gone east instead of west, right?
2: Well, I got uh, there in Lowry Air Force Base one morning. We got orders, and they told us give us $160 to go buy green underwear, so, uh, the next morning they came out and Ross Mistered again said, Nope, all you guys are going to Europe. We're taking everybody that has any experience and sending them to SEA. So mm-hmm. I had a three year tour
1: in Europe. All right. Well, you know, I tried to go to Europe. More often, many, many times I tried to put in for Europe and I kept getting, uh, places that were at the bottom of my list or not even on my list. Anyhow. Well, you, didn't,
2: uh, you, didn't, you didn't talk to the chaplain, right?
1: I guess so. I should have done that. I, I never thought of it. Oh, wow. Well, anyway, the reason that Ted, I wanted to have you. You and your brother were heavily involved in the the Korean War Project, and I wish you would tell us a little bit about your organization.
2: We'll take a trip back to when we first got started. Uh, Hal had the concept of uh, writing his book, and he couldn't get it published, and that was Return to Heartbreak Ridge. It was originally titled Heartbreak Ridge, but we know who took that title, Clint Eastwood so in 95 we got internet access courtesy of two former supercollider scientists and we created our first online and within about 36 hours of announcing it i was getting phone calls and emails saying what happened to me my me where was i uh, do you have any maps what happened to my grandfather where are my buddies etc and so it turned into what you see today a multi you know a multifaceted uh, website and uh, it's still a work in progress
1: it's a, it's a great actually I think it's a pretty good looking uh website you've got here that's koreanwar.org and um as you said you've got everything <laughs> it looks like and I I the reason I wanted to have you on uh Ted was because the, you know the Korean War has kind of you know been called the forgotten war and it, mainly because you didn't get a chance it seems like cuz after World War II and then you guys hit and then uh, and then, you know, the Vietnam War kind of took over for the next 10 years or so, and uh, the Korean veterans got, you know, lost in the dust there, it seems. And you were able to do a, a number of things that I thought were really important. You, uh, we, you were very influential in getting the Korean War Memorial, weren't you?
2: Yes. Hal founded it and took over from a corrupt organization and bypassed them and went to the American Battle Monuments Commission and made a donation to open a trust fund. And then he and Bill Temple, a Philadelphia 38th vet, uh, walked the halls of Congress uh, two two weeks in a row with two minutes. Said we want two minutes, talked to all the committees. They said fine. They wrote up the legislation. House that good? And then they went to uh, committees and they got stuck. And then Hal was fighting with Clint Eastwood over the title of uh, his Clint's movie Heartbreak Ridge, um, and uh, Clint said, "Well, I'll call President Reagan." And well, after the prong call, President Reagan, the bill got out. Uh, first million dollars was put in by a Korean company, and uh, then in 1995, uh, it was the actual dedication. And we went to the dedication on a very, very hot uh, new Washington D.C. week.
1: Yeah, I was I was reading the article and on your website about how you were taking water out to everybody, and and uh, people were passing out because of the heat
2: yeah they had these fences, and they had these big bottles of water all wrapped up in bubble wrap, you know not not open and so I took a bottle and threw it at a secret service agent and got its attention, <laughs> and then tore down the fence and made everybody that was going up to the front reserve section out in the bright sunshine uh take water. So I missed the entire thing by handing out water, but uh wound up meeting uh hundreds and hundreds of really cool people.
1: Oh, I, I can only imagine. And are you, you're in, a, in the process of upgrading the, the uh, memorial, is that what I understand?
2: Well, not us. We've been, had no relationship with the um, foundation, which was founded just after the uh, Korean War uh, Memorial was dedicated. And we've been going back, like since, 20, since 2014, uh, contact, being contacted by them and they wanted to use our database. But then we nothing happened for years until we found out it was actually being built. And last summer, uh, we decided to publish our book of our best effort on the casualties, which is significantly different than the list that the government provided the foundation. But we've got a plan. Um, this is all going to wind up getting settled in the media. There's been dozens of, of, uh, stories. But we've, and it's got our plan is to use it very similar to what we've been doing with the Department of Missing Persons, the DPMO, DPAA, and having our interactive database where people can, Put information up directly, and it's up to the Department of Defense and the the Korean government to buy into it. If they don't, it's not going to get done. Uh, But we're hopeful that the uh, pressure that's being put on by the media will uh, turn the tables. It's not been pleasant, but uh, it is what it is.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I I don't want to get into the political aspect of it, but it just it appears that there are some names that are on the wall incorrectly, or there are some names that are not on the wall that belong on there, and it, it seems like they're. You would think that everybody would want to try to try to work that out.
2: Um, there's been a lot of uh, the, the um, Department of Defense and the foundation has said we got it handled, and we don't need your help now. The Department of Defense did call us in October and said we need help, so we sent them about 500 names of the ones that should be on the wall, and then when we asked for more information, they said, "Well, you can FOIA us, but it's going to be two years." So we don't know what's going on with them, but. Uh, you know, that's that's just what you wind up with when you're dealing with entities like the, the Department of Defense. They have their way and your way may not be congruent and that's it. But we'll get it solved. We've got a detailed plan and uh hope that we can turn the corner. I know the Korean uh the Korean government has said that they will do everything they can to fix every single error and we have not heard from either government uh since this since the uh article has come out, but there's a lot more coming out. And what we want is for at least 1,000 errors in spelling fixed. We want 500 names, including the head nurse of the Army, put on. And uh, so far, it's not going anywhere.
1: Well, maybe we can get a little groundswell going across the country.
2: Well, it's going on out there. Um, I haven't been a big Twitter person, but uh, all of the the, uh, media are sharing. And the uh, stories, there have been at least... a dozen in Korea that we've interviewed and uh, at least 10 in the U.S. TV and, and New York Times, Washington Post that have been seen about 150,000 times on Twitter or on uh, online. So we're going in the right direction and all we can do is hope the Department of Defense uh, determines that the best interest to honor people is to get their full name correct.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I know we've uh, you know, we've had some of those issues with the Vietnam Wall uh, the same. Yes, and we've
2: are. actually talked with the people who did the work, and it's interesting, the Washington Post did a story four years ago that the uh, Department of Defense and the uh, Vietnam Memorial folks spent four years on a line-by-line, case-by-case analysis to correct some duplications, and they wound up with only 35 errors that they finally discovered, which is remarkable since there's 58,000. And mm-hmm. we've actually talked to the engraver who did the work on adding an, and fixing names, so hats off to them.
1: Well, we want to give hats off to you for what you're trying to do for the Korean War veterans, and uh, for our audience, if you want to get more information, how do they do that?
2: Well, they can always go to our website, which is KoreanWar.org. Our emails are listed at the top. You can call me at 214-320-0342, uh, and that's, uh, we answer it all the time. We both work at home. Twitter is out there at uh, at Korean War vets and our Facebook page is just look up Facebook Korean War project um, and um, so any you know any help is always uh, any we can answer any questions if they go up to our page for our book and scroll down past the ordering information you can see the preface to our book uh, that pretty well lays out what we've been doing uh, over the last uh, almost 30 years of doing this work but uh, we're still here we're still going strong and we hope to be around for some time honoring our Korean War veterans living and dead.
1: Well, I want to thank you very, very much for what you do, Ted, for you and your brother and your whole organization. I think it's a, a just a great thing that you're trying to accomplish. And as you said, you've been doing this for a long time and not going to go away until we get it right.
2: Well, I thank you for the, your um, persistence and having people like Dr. Grant on and uh, all your other Fine people I've been following over all these years. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Yeah, actually, yeah, we're we're in. This is our 20th year. Holy moly.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I've still got cassettes you sent me of our interviews.
1: (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Right. Right. Thank you very much. So we've been talking
2: with. Thanks, Dale. All the best.
1: (laughs) Same to you. All right. We've been talking with Ted Barker, who is from the Korean War Project. Their website is koreanwar.org. We're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, uh, Dr. Grant will be here to answer all of your questions about foreign affairs and Air Force jets and that really new secret B-21, which I really want to find out more about. All right. You're listening to Veterans Radio. We'll be back after this.
0: The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. First Lieutenant John Fox called in artillery fire on his own position. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. On Christmas night in 1944, enemy soldiers in civilian clothes gradually infiltrated the town Fox and his men were in, and by early morning, the town was largely in hostile hands. An organized attack by uniformed German units began at 4 a.m. Being greatly outnumbered, most of the American forces were forced to withdraw from the town, but Fox and other members of his observer party voluntarily remained on the second floor of a house to direct defensive artillery fire. Fox reported the Germans were in the streets and attacking in strength. He then called for defensive artillery fire to slow the enemy advance. As the Germans continued to press the attack towards the area that Fox occupied, he adjusted the artillery fire closer to his position. Finally, he was warned that the next adjustment would bring the deadly artillery right on top of his position. After acknowledging the danger, Lieutenant Fox insisted that the last adjustment be fired as this was the only way to defeat the attacking soldiers. Later, when a counterattack retook the position from the Germans, Lieutenant Fox's body was found with the bodies of approximately 100 German soldiers. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio.
1: Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We're back here on Veterans Radio, and now I'd like to introduce one of my favorite guests all the time here on Veterans Radio, and that is Dr. Rebecca Grant. Uh, Dr. Grant is a national security analyst based in Washington, D.C., uh, she has her own organization called IRIS, Independent Research. She specializes in the research of, for government and aerospace industry. She's written over, I don't know, hundreds of articles, hundreds and hundreds of articles. She's uh, appeared on Smithsonian, Fox News, CNN, and on Veterans Radio, more than I can count. Uh, so I'm really excited to have her back on the program. So, Dr. Grant, welcome back to Veterans Radio.
3: Dale, it's great to be back and talking to you again and to your Veterans Radio listeners. Well, 2023, there's already so much to talk about with our foreign and defense policy. can't wait to just dive right in with you.
1: (laughs) I know. I've got a huge list here, (laughs) not only from what you sent me, but some other things. I I did want to uh, just kind of give you a little congratulations shout-out that I see that you're a uh, contributor on Fox News now and that you have been writing opinion pages pages for them.
3: Yes, and you know the great thing about Fox is they do really try to keep up with the international topics and foreign policy. They have uh, reporters uh, over in Ukraine now, and they they do a really good job, and I'm really thrilled when they let me do a a deep dive piece. I did a couple of pieces for them on the B-21 Raider, and those are still up in the opinion columns with foxnews.com. And it's it's great to be able to tackle some of these issues. There's so much other news, of course, but they do a pretty good job at keeping China and Korea and, of course, Ukraine um, in the headlines for us.
1: Right, yeah. And in today's world, uh, you know, important news can get lost sometimes on all of the, you know, all of the different outlets that are out there because, you know, they're trying to keep up with each other and they're trying to, you know, what's the news story for the next 24-hour cycle?
3: That's right. And meanwhile, there are these international trends that are just really reshaping the place of the United States in the world. And they really have a lot of impact on us here at home, on us, and on, on, uh, you know, on our kids, and, on, and of course on our military and the commitments that we expect from them. So it's good to um, – I really, I really enjoy the privilege of, of being on Fox, whether it's on their air or in their opinion pages, to kind of try to keep these issues in front of everyone.
1: Well, I think you are a reasonable source of information. Rational. Let's put that. You are a rational source of information. And I like that very much because your word to me is, is gospel. It's true. Um, it's all
3: about the facts, all about the military facts.
1: That's right. <laughs> Just the facts, the old <laughs> dragnet program, right? Um, correct. Well, let's, let's go to, uh, let's start off in the Ukraine because that's, that's still in the news. It's still such a, a terrible, event that continues to go on now almost a year Uh, what's happening there
3: coming up almost a year and uh, overnight uh, there were heavy attacks across ukraine again this is part of putin's strategy to try to attack civilian targets and the energy grid it's it's really it's not working ukraine is more adamant than ever that they won't give in and What's such a shame to see is that they target uh, civilian infrastructure. And, you know, last night in, in uh, Dnipro, they hit an apartment building, and the pictures are just devastating. It's, you know, it's a multi-story apartment building. It was collapsed by a missile. Interesting, it's an older Russian missile. Uh, it was a NATO call sign Kitchen. Um, And it was actually an anti-ship missile at one point, but this was used against targets in Ukraine. And we're seeing a lot of this, of Russia using just about everything in their arsenal to launch attacks across Ukraine. And, you know, what happens in the end is that civilians get killed, and uh, almost every energy grid target has been hit. But in addition to these terrible casualties in Dnipro, there was a little interesting trend that I noticed in this attack So the Russians are actually using their air defenses, if you can stick with me for a second, their S-300 and S-400 air defenses. That's supposed to be missiles that shoot up and attack planes. Well, they have modified them to have a really short ballistic trajectory. So they put a couple of these Russian air defense batteries up in Belarus to the north of Ukraine, and they're shooting missiles into Ukraine, towards the cities, and they have only a two-minute flight time. So while Ukraine has done a great job at intercepting lots of the missiles and even the drones from Iran, um, hitting these ballistic trajectories with the two-minute flight time is really tough. So it, it is just a brutal escalation. It has no impact on the fighting where the main fighting on the ground is still in the east around bakhu and that's pretty intense right now and of course down in the south where ukraine's taken back a lot of territory but these are just uh, you know brutal terror attacks on ukraine's civilians and then on their energy grid
1: well it doesn't appear that putin's too concerned about uh you know what the world thinks of what he's doing or what uh even what the russian population think about what he's doing and it it almost sounds like he's bringing things out of mothballs because maybe they're just running out of equipment.
3: They certainly are bringing out every type of missile and artillery shell that they have. Of course, one reason Putin can keep getting away with this is he still has 100% backing from Xi Jinping in China. You know, the, the word is that China would really like this war to be over but they have not actually changed their policy. They've really deepened their ties with Russia over the past year, and by continuing to purchase Russian energy and to not condemn Russia, that that means that China basically is still supporting uh, Putin's operation in Ukraine. On the domestic side, you know, the Russian people—well, we we all wish we understood more. There are Russian people who support the war in Ukraine. The media is very controlled there, but there are a lot of question marks as well. We hear that Putin is again trying to do at least a partial mobilization, a draft um, of additional Russians to go down into Ukraine and fight of course, they take individuals that are not well trained at all and put them right into the battle lines and that's you know that just doesn't does not go well for them. interestingly, they fired um, well, I didn't really fire, but they did a command reshuffle in the last couple days. Back in the fall, they had brought in, um, a commander called Sergei Serovykin, and he's the one, he was the bald guy, okay. He had fought in Syria, really, uh, brutal commander, but he recently got demoted, and the top, kind of the last general in Russia, uh, Grasimov himself, who's their equivalent of our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he has now been put in charge of the whole operation. But the fact is, you know, Russia really doesn't have a good way to win here. The Ukraine really does have the momentum. But, you know, we're not seeing any signs at the moment that Putin is quite ready to quit. And, you know, kind of really keeping an eye on the indicators as to whether Putin wants to try another type of offensive or exactly what he'll do.
1: Well, do you think that we should, you know, continue keeping our pressure going by supplying, you know, military supplies and materials and so forth to them? We, you know, we, we in NATO are the ones that have to do that.
3: Yes, and you know, we we just have no choice at this point. I mean, I think over the last eleven months, Ukraine has really earned the support of the U.S. and the forty-eight nations. Uh, in nato and around the world that are supporting them um you know at this point what i see is nato is just fully committed to support ukraine for as long as it takes you know why we have no choice you know if if we don't stop russian aggression here then all of europe is not secure really from finland to istanbul and, and you know that's that's the same argument i think ukraine is deserving of this i think they've proved that with their battlefield success. You know, what I'm seeing also is NATO start to do some longer range planning and very interesting move. Uh, for the first time, Ukraine will now be receiving um, main battle tanks, whether that's the um, uh, they're coming from different countries, from the U.S., also from Britain. Actually, Britain's will arrive first. And that, to me, says you know they're looking at what Secretary of Defense Austin talks about as the long-term defensive posture in Ukraine. So, you know we hope to see Ukraine take more territory through the spring and summer, and then have this come to an end. But there's still going to be the issue of defending Ukraine, and they want to make sure that 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 can go forward. And then, of course, as your as your listeners probably know, there's also been a big emphasis in improving. Ukraine's air defenses. Interesting recent development there is we're actually going to see Ukrainian, um, actually they come from Ukraine's Air Force, they'll be going to Fort Sill to learn how to to train on the Patriot air defense battery that President Biden has promised to them. Um, Not unusual here, we've got Ukrainians training in some other NATO allied countries as well, notably Britain and Germany. Um, and you know, yeah, I think we do have to continue to support. And remember, you know, it's not just the U.S. There are the 48 countries providing. It's a mix of direct military aid, security assistance, humanitarian relief, um, and economic loans. And you know, I really look at a country like Poland, which of course has a border. They have taken in 1.4 million Ukrainian refugees, mostly women and children. Um, the men have gone back to continue fighting. The women are getting jobs in Poland. It's been an issue because not all the, because of language in the schools, right? But a lot of uh, Ukrainian refugees there in Poland where they are most welcome. But Poland has sent about half of its armored forces into Ukraine already, the equipment, not the soldiers. But, you know, of the tanks that they have, they have sent about 400 already for Ukraine to use. I mean, they just have, and they want to buy more, they will get a backfill of uh, some U.S. Abrams tanks. So, you know, we really, to sum this up, uh, you know, we have no choice but to continue the support. This is, China has got to see Russia lose in Ukraine.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and, and I think, it, you know, as you pointed out, all these NATO nations, if, if the Ukraine does fall, then, you know, then Russia's on their borders. And it's, it's, you know, you don't like to use this slippery slope analogy, but that's, you know, you, you take that little country, then you take another little one, like nobody's looking. That's, it seems like he doesn't seem to think that anybody else in the rest of the world is actually looking at what he's trying to do.
3: Exactly. And and, and you're so right. You know, there's the, the Baltic republics, um, Poland, the countries that share a border along there. I mean, they just cannot live with an, a, a militant, aggressive, imperialist Russia, which is what we see under Putin. And, you know, one thing as the news coverage is has downscoped a good bit on Ukraine, of course, but when you look at something like the, the attack uh, recently, the missile attack that took out the apartment building in Dnipro, every village or town where Russia is fighting, they're just leveled. It, I mean, it, it looks like... World War I, or the worst battles of World War Two, yeah. The shelling is unbelievable. The, the civilian populations in, the, in the, the towns that are changing hands in the east there, you know, in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, and of course what we saw with Mariupol in the south before it fell, with Kherson, which Russia took and then had to evacuate under Ukrainian pressure. There are, uh, things are mined, booby-trapped, turn to rubble, uh, the devastation is just, it's just staggering. I mean, this, this just has to stop at Ukraine. There's, there's no question. Russia has to lose. And we have to do what it takes to help Ukraine win.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that one. Um, I did want to add one one little tidbit to that, and that was to talk about the weapons that are coming from Iran.
3: Oh, yes, <laughs> the weapons from Iran. You know, and, and so this is... Russia has been purchasing uh, a couple of types of drones. Iran had started building drones. You know, our forces encountered them uh, in Syria and Iraq. We even shot a few down several years ago. But now uh, Iran is steadily supplying Russia with drones to use in its energy grid attacks and attacks on civilians in Ukraine. It's terrible. And how do we know this is happening? Well, the White House releases the intelligence, and you see the, the, the picture of the drones that are shot down. Uh, and so Iran and Russia are very, very open about it. And it tells you, again, you know, this is a reason why we just this just can't work. This axis, if you will, has to be defeated. Iran has long had really close relations with Russia. You know, Russia builds a um, nuclear plant, all this sort of thing. And, again, energy relationships there, too. So, you know, this is about shutting down Iran. We can't have Iran be successful in sending these drones in. It does tell you, though, that, that Russia's pretty desperate. There are not many people now who will sell. And most drones have um, a really global supply chain set of components in them. And it's pretty easy to say, yep, okay, no more supplies of those. But they are buying the Iranian drones. They're not drones that can change the, the front lines of the battlefield very effectively, but they certainly are causing havoc in Ukrainian cities against Ukrainian civilians. It is just terrible. And how typical of Iran to sell drones like that for that war. Yeah, it's
1: normal behavior for them, although they're running into some problems internally with their, you know, the punishment or the execution of the woman for not wearing her her What's it called? I forget. I can't pronounce it right now. But And then the, they're threatening with uh, one of their soccer players?
3: Yes. After the uh, incident that occurred in September, which probably folks remember, a, a young woman was uh, taken into custody because she wasn't wearing a hijab, her headscarf, and she died in custody. And this set off waves of protest. You know, she's basically arrested, basically died because her hair was showing. Okay? And this set off waves of protests in Iran through the fall Iran arrested a lot of people, whether they were just marching in the street or what, and has executed some. And one of the people that is um, potentially in line to be executed, and it's, just, it's horrible, is um, a man who uh, was a pro-soccer player in Iran. And obviously, uh, soccer, as they would say, football is a very, very big sport in Iran, and so this has really kind of lit up Iranian social media um, and there have been other executions of individuals who, for taking part in demonstrations and riots across Iran. And um, these really are more, uh, you know, riots is probably the wrong word. These really are more demonstrations in support of women's rights and against the strong clerical rule in Iran um, and yeah, they're continuing to do executions and they seriously could overreach here. This is, you know, this is really playing with fire on the part of the Iranians and of course, so uh, terrible and and tragic and unnecessary.
1: I I, I agree. I agree. I mean, mean, we're just, we're just not used to these types of behavior. And it's, it's always so shocking when we hear that some, you know, that somebody was, you know, executed or thrown in jail or whatever for, Whatever the offense might have been that, you know, without without any you know, real defense, you know, the attorneys or you know, anything in the laws are just kind of willy nilly. Um think let's move to another part of the world. Although it's it's not any safer over there. Um I was gonna go to Korea next because our our good friend, right, uh, Kim Jong un has been, you know, blasting off his missile tests recently.
3: Kim Jong-un had a big year in 2022. And, you know, I was listening, of course, when you were talking with with Ted Barker and the Korean War Project. uh, Just think of the sacrifices Americans have made there uh, in what they always called the Forgotten War. Uh, And, you know, at the time that the Korean War was was fought, it was not well publicized that our uh, troops and pilots and sailors were fighting Russians and Chinese in so many cases. It was terrible. Anyway, the outcome of that is, you know, Kim Jong-un and in 2022 he fired 69 missiles. This just smashed his previous record from 2017, which was 25 missile tests. Now, most of those are older short-range type, you know, classy 1960s technology. But about Eight to ten of his missile tests in 2022 were much more concerning because they were tests of long-range missiles. So let me be blunt. Kim Jong-un wants to develop a nuclear-capable missile that can hit the United States. He's not there yet. They still have technical difficulties. A couple of these eight or ten tests of the longer-range systems were complete failures. However, a few of them were at least partially successful in testing various systems necessary for an intercontinental missile. Uh, and again, he's not there yet, but the more he tests, the more he learns. And at the same time, relations with South Korea have just uh, gone downhill. You know, um, just two weeks ago, the North Koreans sent five drones into South Korea's airspace, one of which apparently got pretty near the presidential complex, you know, there in Seoul. And it was just a, a, a shocking event. You know, the Koreans are pretty used to the North. You know, our forces there have that motto, ready to fight tonight. They're used to these threats and provocations, and they're pretty tough, and their military is very prepared. But the drones flying over Seoul, I mean, this was just Terrible, and as a result, you know they they think that Kim Jong Un at this point is really aiming to develop possibly even a full nuclear triad, and that has a lot of consequences for South Korea's long term defense posture too.
1: It it certainly does. I mean, I mean this has been going on for seventy years now or more.
3: It, It has, and if you think back, it was. President Eisenhower, in 1953, he got elected partly by promising to go to Korea and solve that war. And as negotiations were so close, but breaking down, he delivered a a very back-channel threat to use nuclear weapons if he had to. And the threat was effective. And they they backed down, and they agreed to the armistice that is still in place. So for U.S., policy, you know, we still, of course, have about 28,000 soldiers and airmen on the peninsula that are there that are in cooperation with South Korea's military, very capable. But the new element in the last two or three months is that now there are discussions in South Korea about whether they should ask the United States to return the tactical nuclear weapons. Those would be primarily air-delivered weapons that were once stored on the Korean peninsula, during the Cold War. They were removed, you know, back in the 1990s. And there have been uh, some reports that the U.S. and South Korea will do a kind of a nuclear joint exercise, not with any nuclear weapons, but exercising the procedures as necessary. You know, what's really tragic here is back in 2018, um, in the year of 2018, when uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un were negotiating, Kim actually stopped. He didn't do any missile tests at all in 2018, and it looked like maybe there was a chance to lure him into a different policy. But at this point, that sadly is gone. Um, people wonder about China's ability to influence North Korea, and there are kind of two schools of thought. One is that China uh, just doesn't care about North Korea's nuclear weapons probably suits them now to have North Korea as a a provocateur to South Korea and to the U.S. And the other maybe even more worrying part of this is whether they really have the influence over North Korea. You know, I sort of think they do because of that border and they control a lot of the trade. But North Korea completely shut down due to covid And Kim Jong-un's, you know, his family philosophy is we can hold out against anything. So what we see is increasing nuclear development. I think China's assisting them or has assisted them in the past. And so at this point, you know, we really have to look to um, expect a a higher rate of potential nuclear development coming out of North Korea. We already know they have nuclear weapons. There is a high expectation they may do a seventh nuclear test at some point. Uh, luckily, we do still have our West Coast missile defenses, the interceptors in uh, California, uh, at Vandenberg, and up in Alaska, that are really designed to go against a a, a rogue North Korean nuclear threat, but the trends are, are very worrying indeed.
1: Well, we, we are talking here with our good friend, Rebecca Grant, uh, our foreign affairs, military um, awareness, and uh, expert here, and uh, you're listening to Veterans Radio. Um, when you were talking about the the where North Korea was going with their possible new weapons, I wanted to make sure that we got in this conversation about this B-21. Yes,
3: about the B-21. This,
1: this, tell and, me about this airplane. <laughs> well,
3: Jill, you know, this is a good news topic. Uh, the B-21 yeah. is the Air Force's new stealth bomber, and you probably hadn't even seen any pictures of it in the press, right? No. No, and it was kept very secret. They, they uh, started development back in 2015, but on December 2nd of last year, the B-21 rolled out of its hangar, and I've got to tell you, I was there in mm. California to see it. I, it was such a privilege and so exciting. It rolled out just after dark, and the location is Palmdale, you know, near Edwards Air Force Base, which is the land of secret aircraft. And unusual for California, it was, a, it was a foggy, cold evening, very misty. The Air Force did a flyover with a B-52 bomber and then a B-1 and then a B-2 bomber, which is the, the original stealth bomber. And then out came the B-21 from its hangar, um, wonderful moment. Secretary of Defense was there. Lots and lots of people. I had a seat. You know, many, many rows back. But it was great. The uh, it's a beautiful airplane. It really is um, very. I would describe it as, as bird-like. It's avian. It's you know, can't see any engines. The engines are completely hidden away. It is of course stealthy. So it's basically a flying wing. It's gray, kind of a dove gray color. Very unusual little cockpit windows, not like a big screen like, you know, like on my husband's truck or even like on the B 2 bomber, but just kind of small front cockpit windows. Um, really a marvel of American technology.
1: Well, you, this thing can be flown with or without a pilot. Is that my understanding?
3: Well, I think Maybe. it could be. I mean, certainly is- it will have pilots to start with, and it has to go through its flight test program. We're expecting to, it hasn't flown yet. We expect to see that happen sometime the middle of this year. But the Air Force has, has not said much about this bomber at all, of course, to keep its secrets, which we want them to do. But there are some Air Force documents suggesting that this is what they call optionally manned. So it can have a crew, probably a crew of two, like the B two bomber. But it's possible that in some scenarios, this could fly in an unmanned profile in the future. Very, very exciting.
1: I would think that's a really big drone.
3: It yes, and it, and like a drone, it's got that wedge shape to it. It is a little bit smaller than the B two bomber, which it will replace. But that makes it just that much stealthier. And remember, our bomber weapons have changed a lot in the last 30 years. This is the first new American bomber in 34 years. And what once took a 2,000-pound bomb can often now be accomplished with a smaller uh, 500-pound or 250-pound munitions. So that meant that the B-21, which is called the Raider, could have a somewhat smaller bomb bay for the missions it's designed for. And you know the best thing about this? this China has nothing like this. Russia has nothing like this. And for me, it was particularly a thrill to see all the uh, workers from the plant. So it, it rolled out of one of the hangars at the plant, It was only out about 20 minutes, and they put it back in. (laughs) Uh, But it was great to see the workers there um, at the ceremony and how excited they were and how proud they were. They've kept working right through COVID. They never stopped.
0: And apparently they have
3: six of these B21s in some stage of production there at the Northrop Grumman plant in Palmdale, California. Really, really a triumph for American technology and so needed for nuclear
1: deterrence in the future. Wow. I can tell you're excited. You are definitely a fly girl. That's for sure.
3: It was a very exciting Very exciting to see it and because just the culmination of, of so much hard work. And again, so important now, you know, because part of the problem here is that China is also building up their nuclear forces. And so looking ahead... America has to be able to have a nuclear deterrence triad that can deter Russia and China and and deter both at the same time. That's new in American policy and the B-21 will be a very big part of that.
1: Well, I I think this is really great information for our audience to understand that, you know, that we are continuing to develop our, you know, uh, attack systems and our defense systems. You also mentioned uh, that there's a new missile that was fired off in December, the Arrow, Hypersonic Arrow.
3: Yes, December was a good month for the Air Force and its new capabilities. So this took place just one week after the B-21 rollout. There was a successful test on December 9th of a hypersonic missile, and it's called Arrow. That's its, that's, uh, its nickname based on its acronym. Um, And it is a missile that flies at least Mach 5. That's five times the speed of sound. And the important thing about Arrow is this is an operational missile. They are very close to being able to take this. This is not just a test. This is not just a research program. This is the kind of missile that you can deploy forward to the Pacific or to Europe or wherever it needs to go um, as a as a deterrent and as a weapon. So it's, it's a conventional missile. And, of course, uh, Russia already has a couple of these hypersonic missiles, and they've actually used one or two in Ukraine. You never know with Russia whether they actually have um, a shelf full of their hypersonic missiles or just one or two or really how good they are. But we know that this aero test by the U.S. Air Force is it's a it's really a big milestone because there was a lot of debate about, wow, did the US get behind China and Russia in hypersonics and well, let me tell you with Aero, there should be no more questions about that. So, Aero will provide a hypersonic attack capability, conventional capability for US Air Force aircraft and for other services as well. So, it's kind of the beginning of a a stronger new era of hypersonic uh, weapons for the U.S. military, and it really, really needed to keep up with the challenges out there.
1: There are obviously there are many, many challenges out there, and you uh, wrote about uh, China and eight reasons that we needed to be wary of them. I don't know. We've got we've got about uh, eight minutes to go, so <laughs> it's a couple of minutes for each one.
3: I tell you, you know, you could you could have written about a hundred reasons to be wary of China, but I think. You know, the first one has to be their nuclear development. China always had, they've had nuclear weapons since the 1960s, but a fairly small number. They just wanted this small deterrent. Then along comes Xi Jinping. You know, he's got his third term as ruler for life. And a few years ago, he decided that they would start new plutonium production. They would dig out new missile fields, and he wants to build enough nuclear weapons to get up to about where the U.S. is, at about 1,500 weapons. It's crazy. There's just no reason for this to happen. And, of course, China, they don't do arms control. That's not something that they're interested in. They won't, they won't even talk about it. I mean, we have enough other issues with China, but, but arms control is just not a possibility with them. And you know there's just a lot to worry about, of course, there's Taiwan. I mean, you've sort of followed the news on Taiwan, right
1: no the the, uh, the uh, Chinese jet came very close to one of ours,
3: yes, and you know we've seen that in the past, and it's it's so unsafe because remember there was the incident with the uh, the E p three that did collide with a Chinese fighter about twenty years ago now, and actually the Chinese pilot was killed in the incident the P-3 had to land on Hainan Island, and um, you know it, it shows you how unsafe China is. And the other thing that they've been doing a lot, as your listeners probably know, is flying big uh, guerrilla packages, if you call them, you know, really mass packages of fighter aircraft into Taiwan's air defense identification zones. And it started with, well, maybe 15 or 20 aircraft, and, then I was surprised to see they were flying 30 aircraft in a package. The most recent package was 71 aircraft.
1: What does Taiwan so, think when they see that on their radar?
3: Yeah, right. I mean, this is a big, this is big, right? And, you know, I had an uncle in the Marine Corps who was, was stationed on Taiwan back when it was called Formosa with, um, you know, in defense interceptor squadrons. So two things that worry me about this. One is China's Trying to show that they can do an air and naval blockade of Taiwan and use that for coercion. The other thing is that, of course, China's practicing. So when they put together these big packages of aircraft, you know, part of what our military watches is hmm, how well did it go? You know, did they all join up at the right time? How was their flying? And by the fact that China is flying more and more of these large force, packages of, of so many aircraft, it really tells you they're trying to improve their military skill. Because remember, China has zero recent combat experience, and, oh, we want to keep it that way. But unlike, uh, you know, even Russia that's fought in Syria and various places, China really has not fought in a long, long time. So they're using these big exercises against Taiwan to boost their combat skills. Then I think the other thing... Uh, just two other things to point out i won 't go into all eight is of course, the partnership with Russia. you know there was a time when analysts in Washington thought it wouldn 't really happen. Chinese and Russians you know kind of it 's sort of a it 's an arrangement of convenience they have a lot of uh, bias against one another, but for now, their partnership is very strong and they do a lot of joint military exercises and it 's just it's just bad it 's bad news for us and for the west and then I think the other thing is you know what will become of Xi Jinping as he relaxes the zero COVID policy. You know, there were protests against the COVID lockdowns, and he really had to kind of back off and allow a a bit more flexibility. Long-term questions, too, about the slower growth of China's economy. You know, just for a, a data point, China has more than 250 million citizens that are over the age of 65. So the vulnerability to COVID, they won't use the mRNA vaccines because they weren't made in China, although I believe that uh, Pfizer is now uh, looking at selling those into the Chinese market under a different label. But there's a lot of potential political ups and downs in China. But no question, they are, as the Pentagon says, the pacing threat. They're the threat we have to worry about. We know that they're very strong economically, of course, And they're strengthening all the time militarily. And so, you know, keeping China deterred is essential to the American way of life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There are so many, many more things that that I would love to talk with you about, Rebecca. I'm going to have to bring you back again as usual. And uh, to, to talk about some of these things, I, I think the, the, the message I wanted to, get, wanted to get out to our audience was, you know, that we are pretty prepared here in America to, if necessary, defend ourselves from these different organizations.
3: Our military is prepared, and it's still part of our responsibility as Americans to support our military and our allies. And in the cases where we have no choice but to do the right thing, as in supporting Ukraine, and deterring China, we have to keep that strong. That's part of our American way of life at this point. We have to do it in our own interests and in the interests of our like-minded allies around the globe. We just, America's got to stay in the game
1: you got to stay in the game. So you got to stay in the game too cuz you are our expert on this. And I want to thank you very much again for being on Veterans Radio. We've been talking with Dr. Rebecca Grant and um you can follow her on um it just type her name into Google. Not the actress, don't do the actress. <laughs> but type her name in there and you can find all of her articles and so forth on the, uh on the web. It's really it's 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 good reading and you feel very um I feel very confident whenever I read anything that you write, uh, Rebecca.
3: Well, I have such great confidence in our military. They are the best.
1: They are the best. And on that note, we'll end our our interview for today. Thank you very much for being on Veterans Radio again. Again, this is our 20th anniversary, so we're going to have to have you back uh, before the year is over.
3: Terrific. Thank you, Dale.
1: All right. Thank you. All right. Dr. Rebecca Grant talking all about what's going on in the world. We had Ted Barker on talking about the Korean War Project. This is what we do here on Veterans Radio, and this is why we encourage you to go to our website, veteransradio.net, and click on that Donate button because we want to bring all of these stories to you. Um, next week, we've got a really good program coming up. Um, it's a, a doctor, a MASH doctor in Vietnam, and he's going to be talking about his experiences as a, an anesthesiologist in Vietnam and the... Uh, work that he had to do there and of course his private practice but the really interesting part of that is he's got we have a guest who was treated by him in vietnam and they have reconnected and that's that's a really cool story so until next week this is dale thronberry for veterans radio you are dismissed